0: Open up your Bibles as the, as the ushers are, are going through. Open up your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 2. So um, remember last week we started the series on the seven churches of Revelation, and then uh, we're going to go. So it's going to be an eight-week series. But last week uh, what we did was we looked at who it was that was writing these letters. This is the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jesus in, in all of his uh, glory and all of his majesty, and he appears to John as John is, is uh, worshiping, and just the picture that we get of Jesus Christ here is, is absolutely incredible. In fact, it's one of the best in all of Scripture that we, that we have of the resurrected Lord and, and what he's like now. And so, if you were not here last week, that's okay. We forgive you. Uh, But uh, go ahead and and read chapter 1, or at least the description of Jesus Christ, because it is absolutely mind-blowing to read this description of our Lord. For me, I always think of Jesus, or I always picture Him in my mind as the man, the man who came to to live the life of a servant, which is great, and that's wonderful, and that's how He's depicted in the Gospels. But this depiction of Him in Revelation chapter 1 is is absolutely um, incredible. So... We did that last week. We see who commanded these letters be written as Jesus Christ. And um, now what we're going to see is what these letters entail. And the first letter is addressed to the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian church, okay? But in order to really understand what's happening you have to also understand the context of where this church was and and, and what he means, okay? And so um, Ephesus, let's look a little bit of at the city. But Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor. Um, it, it was not the capital, but the Roman governor lived there, okay? And so you could think of Ephesus as kind of like a New York City. New York is not the capital of anything except for... Um, finance, right? It's obviously a vital city in our country. And so uh, that's kind of how Ephesus was. It wasn't the political capital of anything, but it certainly was the economic capital of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, okay? During this time period, the city had a population of about 250 to 500,000 people. This is a huge city given this, this time frame, right? The city had several cultural landmarks uh, that can still be seen today, like the theater where the, the rioters drug Paul and his friends in Acts chapter 19, which we have a picture of uh, right behind me in a second. There we go. All right. So uh, these right here are, you can still go there. You can go sit there and, and maybe some of you have actually been there. Has anybody ever been there? You have? Have you been in this theater? Yeah, okay, um, so he's been in this theater. So um, anyway, it's not in Canada, it's, it's in Turkey. Um, anyway, so this is, this is what it looks like. You can go there, you can sit there, it's great. Obviously, this is, uh, some guy drew a cartoon of what it would have looked like 2,000 years ago. Uh, this thing sat 25,000 people, okay, it's huge. And uh, to give you a little bit of perspective, Madison Square Garden in New York City holds 20,789. Okay? And so this thing is bigger than Madison Square Garden. It is a little bit smaller than Wrigley Field, though. Okay? Um, Ephesus sat about three miles up the river from, uh, from the harbor or off of the Aegean Sea. Okay? And so, uh, but the river kept uh, pushing silt and deposit and all of this stuff. So it's actually now six miles away from the Aegean Sea. Ephesus was strategically located at a junction of four of the most important roads in the Roman Empire. Okay, so think about this. this is the, it has the largest port in all of Asia Minor, and it has four of the most important roads connecting right through the city. Uh, what drove this city was, was trade. It, I mean, it was an economic powerhouse. It really was. Okay, and so um, there was trade, and people would come to this city from all over the world In order to make their trades and and go and travel and and all of this stuff. And so, it was a very wealthy city. So wealthy, in fact, that they were able to build what Ephesus is actually most known for. Um, it, It actually was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which is the temple of the Roman goddess Diana, or the Greek goddess Artemis, okay? And so she is the goddess of fertility. And we've got, a, oh, there it is. We've got a picture of it right there, a big fancy temple. There's another picture of it after this. Um, that's what it looked like. It's not standing anymore today. It, it's destroyed. It's not there. But to be honest, this is what Ephesus was really known for. This temple is what they're known for, okay? And so, um, not just the temple, the temple itself, it's a beautiful building. In fact, first look at it, you'd think it could be in Washington, D.C. But it it is a beautiful building. It was incredible, and who knows how they actually uh, built it, but they did. That's where it was. But what it means is that there was was just a huge amount of pagan worship there. This is the seat of worshiping the goddess of fertility. And so, um, there were thousands of temple priests and priestesses, and many of whom served as temple prostitutes. And so, as you'd go in to worship um, Artemis, then you worship with a prostitute, which is how they did that. And so, it just, it was a vile, vile lifestyle. The city was absolutely full of immorality and pretty much everything that Christianity stands for, everything that Christ preached against, they endorsed in Ephesus. In fact, not only did they endorse it, but it was expected. If you didn't do that, then you were persecuted. If you were in Ephesus and you did not worship Artemis, I mean, you were were persecuted, you're hated. It was a part of their identity. Like so many ancient metropolises, Ephesus was known for its immorality. Um, Even one of its own pagan philosophers claimed that its own citizens were fit only to be drowned. The city was, again, just full of immorality. And it's in this city that the Ephesian church is located. Okay, so we have to understand that context before we can really understand the church in Ephesus and also the, the criticisms and commendations that Christ gives them. Okay, so in the middle of all of that, you have the Ephesian church. Forty years before the book of Revelation is written, Paul and Aquila and Priscilla come to Ephesus and they plan a church. When they did this, Paul's preaching causes a riot related to the temple of Artemis. Paul understands the significance of the city, which is why he spent so much time there. He spent a few years there ministering. He met with the church's elders uh, right before he was going back to Jerusalem. He, he wrote one of his letters from prison to the church, the book of Ephesians. Paul sent his young protege, Timothy, to serve there as pastor. It was in Ephesus that that Timothy was serving as pastor when Paul wrote the letters to him. The apostle John also served as pastor there. In fact, most people believe that John was serving as the pastor of the Ephesian church when he was arrested and exiled to Patmos. John then wrote his three letters also to the church or people in the church. So when we think about it, the Apostle Paul, his protege Timothy, and the Apostle John all served in Ephesus. And seven books of the New Testament were written either addressing the church or its leaders directly. This church is of vital importance. It's it's got an incredible history, not not just the city, but, but the church. And the city and the church played a vital role in early Christianity and the spread of the gospel. Again, remember, they have the largest port in Asia Minor and four of the largest roads in the Roman Empire in the city. And so um, as the trade happened, so the gospel spread. So as people were coming in and out of the city, they'd come to the city and then go somewhere else. The gospel would go with them. And so really the, the city of Ephesus and the Ephesian church played a vital role in the spread of Christianity. And the apostles knew that. That's why why they were so devoted to serving that church and keeping that church healthy. So that's the context of where we're going to get this letter. You have a a vile city, an immoral city. uh, It's a hub for pagan worship. And then you have this church that has a rich history where apostles have served as pastors and books of the Bible are written to address the church. And then Jesus Christ addresses them as well. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ addresses them directly in verses 2 and 3 and then also in verse 6. So uh, the way Jesus does it is he addresses them and then he commends them and then he criticizes them and then he encourages them and tells them another thing they're doing well and then he, um, he tells us basically that this is for all Christians everywhere. That's the layout of this letter. So... We talked about this last week. Jesus knows everything about the church. He knows everything about all of us, right? And so um, he knows how to commend them and how to criticize them or how to convict them, okay? And so verses 2 and 3. I'll just start at 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So he's going to commend them, right? What's he commending them for? Essentially, remaining faithful. Faithful. Their works is the first thing that that he commends them. I know your works, your toil. Toil, literally, this is is working to the point of sweat and exhaustion. This church is full of people who are working hard. In the the Greek, this word describes an all-out effort, demanding all that a person can give, everything. So the church as a whole, I mean, they really are working and remember their context, remember where they're at, remember the persecution that they would have been facing. In the middle of this pagan city, this church is working hard to see people turn away from Artemis, away from Diana, and towards Jesus. Stop going to the temple, come worship with us. They want to do the right thing. They want to see people turn away from pagan religions. They want to see sins wiped clean and and baptisms take place. They're working hard at at making that happen. They want nothing to do with the immorality that's all around them. They they want nothing to do with it. They're they're disgusted by it. They're they're working extremely hard. Let me illustrate this a little bit. I have always loved distance running. I know that's crazy to a lot of people, but it's just something I like to do, right? So I, I like to run really far. So imagine, I, I, I like marathons, and, and so imagine if, if you sign up for a marathon, right? You're going to run 26 miles, okay? So you go, and you train, and you prepared, and you're ready, and you've got, you've got your little water belt, and your little snacks, and you're ready to run this marathon, right? And you, you go to the starting line, and they start the race, and you jump on a treadmill, Okay, and and you run and you're working as hard as you can, you're running as fast as you can, and you're running the best race of your life, but you're on a treadmill. And everybody else has started and they're gone and and they're they're running the course and they're doing everything that they can do. If you're on that treadmill, you might be working your tail off, but you have no hope at winning. You have no hope of of ever even crossing the finish line. You have no hope of, of running that race correctly. You're working hard. Nobody's doubting that but you're not doing it right. That's what this church is doing. They're working hard. They really are working hard, but that's it. That's it. They're working hard, but then it goes right into the next one. Jesus commends them for their patient endurance, and this is not, We have to make clear of this, this is not a patience with people. This is a patience in the midst of trials. It's like a a courageous acceptance of difficulty or hardships. This church is being persecuted. And they're, they're, they're patient in that persecution. They're enduring it. We understand their local context and what we know about the city and how they responded uh, to the gospel from Acts 19. The church in Ephesus, they were faithful to Jesus in, in spite of the hostility around them. They're facing They are facing a persecution that you and I will probably never see. But they're enduring it. They're enduring it, and they're not wavering. And then Jesus gives them another praise. You cannot bear with those who are evil. Remember, again, their city. Evil is all around them. You cannot bear with those that are evil. They knew how to identify sin and how to keep it out of their midst. And to be honest, this is an incredible compliment coming from Jesus Christ. It, it probably carries over from four decades of obedience to Paul's words when he, in Ephesians chapter, chapter 4, verse uh, 27, he said this, give no, or, and give no opportunity to the devil. They took that to heart. They're not giving an opportunity to the devil. They're not going to give in to immorality. They're not. Paul addressed the the elders of this church as well, giving a description. To be honest, it's a job description for elders in a church, but um, he essentially reiterates the same command. This comes in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, beginning with verse uh, 28. "'Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers.'" To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years it had not ceased, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Paul's words were understood here. John warns of the same thing to the same church. In the book of 2 John, there's only one chapter, so 2 John, verses 7 and 8, "...for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward." they are not interested This church is is, is being obedient to these commands. They're they're not interested in immorality. They're not interested in sinful, evil men coming into the church and twisting the teaching. They did a great job of guarding against that. Then the scripture continues. Verse 4, he's going to go to the criticism. We're going to go to 4 and then... um, Well, let me just jump to verse 6. Yet this you have. So Jesus is commending, he writes the introduction, then he commends them, then he's going to criticize them in verse 4, and then he's going to uh, encourage them again. So in verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay, so he's commending them for hating the works of the Nicolaitans. So there's a question then, who are they? Who are the Nicolaitans? They are only mentioned twice in Scripture. Two times. Once right here, and then the other time is in 2, verse 15. So the Scripture doesn't mention anything about them other than they're evil. But the early church fathers did talk about them. Um, Irenaeus, Clement, and Tertullian all all wrote about them pretty, pretty extensively. And what we can gather about the Nicolaitans is that they are a heretical group who followed a proselyte named Nicholas. Nicholas was, most people believe this is the same person, Nicholas was one of the original seven deacons ordained in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Most people, uh, and I agree with this, believe that he was a deacon. He was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, and he leaves the faith, and he goes off into heresy, uh, teaching basically heresy until he died. This group uh, pursued indulgence, okay, and so um, and, and to be honest, they pursued indulgence in just about every way imaginable. And so you could kind of think uh, this would be kind of like the modern day prosperity gospel uh, with pagan immorality mixed in. So that's who they're. That's who they're. That's that's what these men have come into the church and tried to get the Ephesian church. To, to come with them, but they withstood it. These men, or the Nicolaitans, they twisted freedom from the law. They pushed to have pagan practices included in and intertwined with Christian worship. The Ephesians withstood it, even though accepting it would have made their lives easier. Had they accepted Integrate and integrating pagan worship with Christian worship, their lives in Ephesus would have been a lot easier. Okay, but, but again, we've, talked, we've said several times the Christian life is never meant to be easy, is it? And so they didn't do it. So this church is doing some things well. They're withstanding heresy. They're, they're keeping immorality out of the church. They're, they're enduring persecution. But they also did something... Wrong that Christ is going to criticize them for. Verse 4 But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You abandon the love you had at first. From the outside looking in, this church would have looked healthy. Looking from the outside, if you weren't a part of this church, it, you would have thought that they were a great. Bible-believing, Jesus-loving church. And to be honest, this same thing can be said of churches all across the world today. Baptist churches, um, I'm trying to think of other denominations. I guess I'm a good Baptist. I can't think of any other ones. <laughs> Christian churches, evangelical churches around the world can, can be accused of the same thing, right? Their lifestyle looked like it matched up with the confessions of their faith they they tried to live out what they claimed they believed churches today look healthy ready but here's the kicker they look healthy and they try to be obedient but there's no love in the church there's no love in the church and so they're pursuing obedience just to pursue obedience. It's an empty obedience. They were legalistic and they'd become a Pharisee church is what they had done. They wanted to obey just because they had the rules and regulations, just because the Apostle Paul had written them and told them what to do, what not to do. And so that's what they went by. They didn't do it because they loved Jesus. That's the problem. They were doing the right things, but had lost the right motivation for doing the right things. Which the book of Isaiah says is like dirty rags in the sight of the Lord. They were being obedient out of obligation, not out of a love for Jesus. They weren't trying to reach the city because they loved the people in the city, they're trying to reach the city because they were repulsed by immorality. This might not sound like a big deal, but it really is. The difference is is like this. Let Let me share these two statements. I obey, therefore, Jesus accepts me. Because of my obedience, Jesus has accepted me. Now, let me say it another way. Jesus accepts me, therefore, I happily obey. Talking about the same thing, but those two statements are incredibly different. I know who Jesus is. And in fact, if we read Revelation 1, we, we can see how incredible he is. Because I know who he is, and then I read the Gospels and see what he's done, I happily obey him. I, I happily lay my life down and submit to him and say, Jesus, you are Lord. I am fallen, I'm in desperate need of a Savior. Jesus did not accept me because of my obedience. I am incapable of that kind of obedience on my own. Jesus accepts me. He loves me because he's gracious and he's loving. Not because my behavior is great. Not because your behavior is great. He loves you right now for who you are as you sit here today. Whether you have put your faith in him as your savior or not, he loves you. He died for you. And because of that, we're able to say, I happily obey. The Ephesians didn't lose their love. It didn't walk away from them. They walked away from it. They abandoned their love. That's what the Scripture says. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned. They walked away from it. But what exactly is the love Jesus is talking about? Because we don't want to be accused of this. And to be honest, I would give you two answers. I'd give you two answers, and those two answers are joined together, and they're joined together in Matthew 22, and I'll read that in a minute. But I I think, let me tell you what they are. They lost their love for their neighbors, and I think that happened first. First. I think that happened first because, to be honest, when we know their context, we know where they lived, it would be easy to lose a love for, for those neighbors that they had, wouldn't it? People who persecute you and hate you, people who, who go to a temple to worship with a prostitute, it would be easy not to love them. It would be easy to walk away from that type of love for those type of people. But once they did that, then they lost their love for Jesus. And those two are connected in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. I'll I'll read verse 37. This is called the greatest commandment, the great commandment. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, keep in mind, the question was, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus gave that answer. But then he follows it up with, This, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The question was not, what are the greatest two commandments? The question was, what's the greatest? And Jesus gives them the greatest commandment. And then he follows that up because he's connecting them. Love the Lord your God with everything you have. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the point. They had lost the passionate love they had for Jesus. They lost the passionate love they had for His gospel, and they most definitely lost the love of the people that they were supposed to bring that gospel to. They didn't care about the people that they lived with. They didn't care about their neighbors. In fact, they were repulsed by them. This happens to Christians today not because of living in the midst of persecution and a pagan worship center or anything like that, but because, to be honest, Christians have become complacent. We don't have to worry about persecution, and that's a great thing. We should be very grateful for that. But at the same time, Christians can become complacent. And so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and just answer them in your own mind. I don't want to know the answer. Can you honestly say that you love your neighbors? Honestly, if, right off the bat, do you love your neighbors? You love your neighbors, okay? Do you, do you really love your neighbors? Do you love your neighbors in the Matthew 22 kind of way? Do you love your neighbors as yourself? Now, our neighbors that are easy to love, that's simple. My neighbor Jim, he's a great guy. He's easy to love. He's my friend. We do things together. It's great. He he goes down to to Faith Chapel and worships, and we talk about the Lord, and he's easy to love. But I'm not just talking about our next-door neighbors. The Scripture isn't just talking about your next-door neighbor, the ones that are easy to love. So answer this question. Do you love, in the Matthew 22 kind of way, the people who right now today are fighting for abortion rights in our own city? Do you love them, or are you repulsed by them? Do you really love them? If you answered yes, are you being honest? What evidence tells you that you really love them? Because to be honest, just because the Bible tells you to do something doesn't mean you do. So the Bible tells us to love our neighbors. That includes the abortion rights activist. That includes that person who we absolutely disagree with. But he also tells us to to love that person. Just because he tells us to do it doesn't mean we do it. Sometimes we disobey. What evidence tells you that you really love that person? Do you really love people right now in America who are advocating for gay rights? Do you love them or are you repulsed by them? Because you can't do both. You can't be repulsed by them and love them at the same time. Do you love the addicts we see on the street every day? You drive downtown, you'll see them. In our own city, in our own city, do you love these parents who choose meth over their own child? It's heartbreaking. And it's terrible. And it's awful. And these people, we, we absolutely might disagree with them. And we can look at them and say they're heavily involved with, with sin. And, and that's just a huge part of their life. But Jesus died for them. Not only did Jesus die for them, but he told us, to love them as ourself because these people that I just mentioned in our own community are the very people that Jesus is criticizing the Ephesians for not loving, for abandoning. And it's hard. Don't get me wrong. It is difficult. I'm not pointing the finger at you because to be honest, I'm right there with you. Jesus tells us to love them. And convincing ourselves that we love them is not the same. We can convince ourselves, well, yeah, the Bible says to love your neighbor, so I love my neighbor because I'm a Christian and I love Jesus. It's not necessarily true. You can disobey what the Bible tells you to do. When you become callous to the people Jesus sent you to reach, which for most of us is people in Billings. For you guys, it's somebody somewhere else. But when we become callous to the people that Jesus called us to reach, then you become callous to Jesus himself. And that's what happened in Ephesus. We can trick ourselves into, you know, redefining love. We can can convince ourselves that, yeah, I love them because, you know, I drove by them and didn't throw anything at them or or whatever. Um, But when we separate ourselves from the teachings of Jesus... Then we begin to separate ourselves from loving Jesus himself. He tells us that. And so we should take very seriously when he tells us to love our neighbors. Because he means it. And he's addressing the Ephesian church with this very same issue. And they're doing some great things. They're enduring some terrible persecution. They're remaining true to morality and they're doing the right thing. But they don't love their neighbors They don't love the people who are involved in immorality. They don't love the people who are worshiping pagan gods because they're disgusted by them. They don't want anything to do with them. And so, yeah, though, someone who, who changes their behavior and walks into the church and says, I need Jesus, not a pagan god, the Ephesian church would have gladly accepted, and so would we. But do we really care about the people who need Jesus the most? The people that are really hard to love,